Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. We are coming to the time of the service now where we, we hear from God's Word. Uh, so I'm going to do the Bible reading for us this morning. We're reading from uh, Matthew chapter 4, uh, starting from verse 12 uh, to 24. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be great to have it open. Otherwise, uh, the text will be on the screen. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, starting from verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. My name's Ben. If we've never met before, uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this morning. God, it's such a privilege uh, that it, we can meet face to face. As Sam was talking about before, Lord, it's easy to get complacent in Queensland as we think about COVID, but uh, what a privilege it is, Lord, that we can meet, that we can be here in the same room together. Father, we pray that as we open up your word this morning that you would change us, that you would challenge us, that you'd speak to us. We pray that you'd help us understand it, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder when you think of the king, who do you think of? You know, when you think of the king, see, I think for most of us, we probably think of maybe Elvis, maybe Michael Jackson, the king of pop, maybe Wally Lewis, any of those guys, they were the best in their field, and that's why they were called the king. But see, what's interesting is that these days, it seems like you can get the nickname the king without actually doing anything. I don't know if you've noticed that, but let me give you some examples of it. There's this guy in the Philippines who's an actor, and he calls himself Da King. He just called himself that. There's LeBron James. If you're into basketball, yes, he may be the best player ever. He might not be, but he got the nickname The King when he was in grade eight from a local newspaper. 
You can't tell me that he deserved it then. But the guy that I think illustrates this point more than any other guy at the moment who's called the king is this guy. I don't know if you know this guy, but this guy's name is Clint Gutherson, or as he's affectionately known, Gutho. And don't get me wrong, Gutho is a good little player, but he's not the king. You know, so let me explain it. If you're not into NRL, uh, he's the best player of the Parramatta Eels, if that means anything. Uh, He might be the top five in his position in the league uh, this year, but again, I'm not sure if this means anything. He might actually play for New South Wales in the state of origin, but that doesn't mean that much. And anyway, his nickname is The King. The King, right? Now, here's my problem with it. He doesn't deserve that name. The king, he hasn't done anything. He hasn't won anything yet. He's not the best player in the competition. He's hardly even, I mean, he's the best player this year in his team, but who knows next year. He doesn't deserve this nickname. But I think what he illustrates to us is the fact that these days to be called the king, it can pretty much mean nothing. Now, here's our problem with that. When we open up the Bible, we see that Jesus is also called the king. And I wonder if you've ever thought about it. For Jesus to be called the king, what does it mean for Jesus when he's called king? What does it mean for him? I mean, is he on the same level as like Elvis or Michael Jackson or Wally Lewis? Or is he on the same level as Gutho? Or does it mean something else for Jesus? What does it mean for Jesus to be called the king? And then what does it mean for us when he is called king? Well, what we're going to do today is walk through this passage that we looked at before, Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to see in this eyewitness account of Jesus what it means for Jesus to be called king. And we're going to see three things, actually, that it means for Jesus. And the first is in these opening verses, and we see this here. The first thing it means for Jesus is that he's God's king. Notice if you see this in verse 12. We pick it up there. It says, When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first thing we see about Jesus, that it means for him to be called king, is that he's God's king. And we see this in this passage in a few different ways, that he's actually God's representative on earth. He is the king of everything that God has made, of heaven and earth, right? So he's not just the best in his field. He's not just the best player on his team. He is God's king. Okay, now we get this in a few different ways in this passage. Firstly, actually, we get it in the context, okay? So let's just ground ourselves a little bit in the book of Matthew. Last week, Ross spoke to us about how Jesus is fully God and fully man. We we looked at how last week, and there was a few things last week that gave us this hint that Jesus is the king. If you remember, last week we saw he's of the line of David, okay? We didn't talk too much about that last week, but that's significant. He's got royalty in his blood, Right? He's, he's God's king. We see this again, though, last week. There was this one line, if you remember, in chapter 1, I think it's verse 18, where it says, this is the birth of the Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one or God's king. Right? So the context here, Matthew wants the Jewish people he's writing to to know over and over again, this is God's king. But we see this again in how the prophecies fulfilled. You see, John's ministry is over. That's uh, what we read in verse 12. And then Jesus, his ministry begins. But the first thing we see for Jesus is a prophecy fulfilled. Now, a prophecy is kind of God's way of saying, this is my guy. 
right? Like God spoke beforehand that this was going to happen and then it's fulfilled and it's God's way of just pointing out to everyone, listen up, this is my guy. And Jesus, the first thing he does is fulfill a prophecy. He goes to Naphtali, he goes to Zebulon, and that's the prophecy that was spoken kind of 750 years beforehand through Isaiah. It's fulfilled in Jesus. This is God's king. Then we see it again in verse 17 with the first thing that Jesus says in his ministry, the first words of his first sermon. And what is it? It's repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is God's king, and he's saying, repent, turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven's come near. Now, there is a question here. Kingdom of heaven, it's a bit jargony, right? I mean, what, is, what does kingdom of heaven mean? What's this idea when we think of kingdom of heaven? Well, it's interesting because we actually see in the Bible that kingdom of heaven is kind of interchangeable with heaven or, or even eternal life. Sometimes it's kingdom of heaven, sometimes it's just heaven, sometimes it's eternal life. And, and this idea, though, kingdom of heaven, it brings a different aspect to just heaven or eternal life. You know, when you think of heaven, what do you think of? Eternal life, we think of later. You know, we think of good stuff. We think of no sickness, no pain, all of that stuff, and that's true. But kingdom of heaven, it brings this idea of not just good stuff, but living under the loving and gracious rule of a king. You see, the reason Jesus can rock up and say the kingdom of heaven is near is because he's the king of heaven, and he's come near. Heaven's not just this idea of later on. The kingdom of heaven's not just this idea of later on because when Jesus is near, when his presence is near, he brings with him the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king of heaven. So the first thing it means for Jesus to be called king is that he's God's king. He's ruler of everything, heaven and earth. He's the highest authority, the king above all kings, the Lord of lords. He's the one to whom all people will be held accountable to. This is what it means for Jesus to be called king. He's not the best in the field. He's not some random guy that means nothing to you. No, he's God's king, ruler of everything. What's the second thing we see about Jesus being king? What does it mean for him? Well, we see it as we keep reading, and we see that this king has a people, and his people listen to him. Notice how we pick this up in verse 18. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Which the idea there is stop pursuing fish, let's start pursuing people. Okay, that's what Jesus means. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, Zebedee, Zebedee and his father John. They were in a boat with their uh, father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. The first thing we see about Jesus is that he's God's king. The second thing we see about Jesus is that he has a people and his people listen to him. And I love this account of these guys listening to Jesus and following him. This is kind of the the first account really of followers to Jesus in the book of Matthew. And the account of it, I mean, they're they're listening, their obedience to the call of Jesus is so powerful. So you've got to feel the weight of this. Let's set the scene a little bit. Uh, back in the day, fishing was a job. It puts you kind of in the middle class of society. And for these guys, this was their, their life. This was their job, their financial security. And so you've got, first and foremost, the, the picture of Simon, Peter, and Andrew. They're on the boat. Now, the way that it reads for us there is that literally they are mid-casting their net. 
Okay, so the nets back in the day, if you were a fisherman, they're kind of big nets. And around the nets, if you're not familiar with fishing, is uh, kind of you'd have sinkers on the outside of the net. So you'd cast this net, and then it would sink down, and the fish would get trapped in it. So mid-casting their net, Jesus is walking by and says, hey guys, come and follow me. Then you've got James and John. They're with their dad. So again, often back in the day, because it was their job, this was a family business, family politics with that. And so James and John, they're on the boat and they're mending their nets or preparing the nets. So they're getting ready to go fishing. And as they're fixing up the nets, Jesus says, hey guys, come and follow me. Now you feel the weight of this there. Mid-work day, mid-moment, Jesus says, follow me. And I wonder what you'd do in that moment. You see, for me, when I think about this, uh, and, I, and I'm someone that I like fishing. Um, you know, if you know me, I, you could even, some would say I love fishing. And in the last few weeks, Elizabeth and I went on holidays, and I got a chance to fish a little bit. So what we would do, what I would do, Elizabeth didn't really, uh, but what I'd do is I'd wake up at dawn before the sun would come up and I'd go out and the picture is, you know, you're on the water in my kayak, steam coming off the water, I don't know why, the sun rising, birds chirping, and despite the haters saying I'd never catch any fish, I got onto some fish. Now, the idea, fishing, mid-morning, mid-moment, calm, peaceful, the idea that when I cast my line, mid-cast, someone would come up and say, hey, Ben, follow me. I don't think that's going to happen. Right? That's like, that's, that's borderline insanity. That'll never happen. Right? Because I'm in that moment. I'm in my groove there. And, and for that to happen, it's got to be something big. Now, I think if I'm on that boat, I'm telling Jesus, give me a few minutes. Right? Like if I'm mid-cast, particularly I'm saying, Jesus, I've just cast a net as you saw. Give me a few minutes. I'll pull the fish up and then we'll be sweet. Maybe you think more along the lines of, you know, I'm in a a busy work season. You know, this season's a bit crazy. Give us a couple of weeks and then we'll come and follow you. Maybe the situation at home's a little bit different. You know, actually, Jesus, the kids are pretty young at the moment. It's not ideal, the time to follow you right now. Um, Let me sort out some stuff. When they get older, then I'm all in, and then I'll come and follow you. I think any of that's pretty reasonable. But what do they do? Well, Well, Matthew stresses this for us, and you see it in verse 20 and verse 22, at once in verse 20, and immediately in verse 22. Mid-work day, mid-moment, Jesus calls, and what do they do? Immediately they follow him. I love their obedience here. You know, it's just straightforward. They drop what they're doing. And Matthew is stressing here the sacrifices that they're actually giving up. You know, he could have just written four guys started following Jesus, and here are their names. But he stresses what they're giving up. It's financial security. There's a bit of family stuff going on. This is their livelihoods here that they're letting go of. But they let go of it, and they follow Jesus. You see, Jesus to be a king means he's got a people, and his people listen to him. They obey his call, and yes, that's in small ways, but sometimes it's in really big ways, like this moment here. So firstly, Jesus is God's king. Secondly, Jesus is a king with a people. What's the third thing that it means for Jesus to be called king? Well, we see this as we keep reading from, 22, uh, from 23. 
And the, the third thing it means for Jesus to be called king is that he makes a difference. He's got a good kingdom. And he gives us a taste of that from 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. There it is again, the good news of the kingdom. And healing every diseases and sicknesses among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. The third thing it means for Jesus to be called king is that he brings in a kingdom reality. And here we get a taster of it. And how good is it what Jesus does here in these verses? Because what he's doing here is he's inviting outcasts in. You know, those who have been pushed out of society, he's inviting them in. Those who are broken, he's inviting them in. Those who are by themselves, he's bringing them together. And what's he doing? He's restoring them. He's healing them. Every disease we read there, he deals with sickness here. All of the pain. He deals with those who have been paralyzed their whole lives. He deals with Satan and those who are demon-possessed, and he fixes it all up. And in this moment, what Jesus is doing, he's giving us a taste of what his kingdom will look like, and his kingdom is good. It's beautiful. This picture is so good because we need this picture. Don't we need to know that there is a future hope, a future glory that is good? where Jesus invites the outcasts, the broken, those who are suffering from the stings of this world, and where he fixes that up. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us a taste of it. But you see, it is just a taste, because verse 23 to 25, it's momentary for these people. But Jesus will, as we'll explore in this series, he'll go to the cross, and he'll die, and he'll rise, and he'll ascend, and he promises that when he returns, he's going to fix it for good. Jesus makes a difference. His kingdom is a good kingdom under the loving rule of the king where he will deal with sickness and suffering and sin and Satan for good. This picture, it's so good. You see, Jesus isn't a king with a kingdom that means nothing. His kingdom makes a difference. His kingdom is good and he's a king that brings this in. Right, so we see what it means for Jesus. He's God's king. He has a people that follow him. His kingdom, it's good. He makes a difference. But as we see this about Jesus, I guess there's this question for us. What does it mean for us to see this? What does it mean for us to be God's, or to follow this king, or to understand this king, or to know this reality about this king? Well, I think again, as we see this passage, there's three things for us that it means in light of the three things that it means for Jesus. Three things that are kind of practical for us as we think about what it means that Jesus is king. Firstly, in light of him being God's king ruler of heaven and earth, the highest authority. And it's got to do with Jesus' words when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. You know, this, this word repent, this is a big word throughout the Bible. And repentance, it's kind of, it falls into that category of jargon again. Sometimes we, we get the vibe of it, but don't know what it means. But literally the idea is I'm going one way and I turn to follow Jesus. But see, throughout the Bible, repentance has two ideas. One is a big repentance, a big one-off kind of repentance, and the other is ongoing repentance. So the big repentance is when we put our trust in Jesus for the first time. You know, maybe you're here today and you've done this. You'd say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not, and you're still on this journey exploring who Jesus is. 
Maybe you're somewhere else and you're thinking about who, who, who is Jesus in this? Well, to repent in a big way means I'm going to stop living my own way and follow Jesus. This is what we do when we become a Christian. You know, I remember for me when I did this, I was 18. Best decision I ever made, to turn and follow Jesus. But see, repentance isn't just the big one-off thing. In the Bible, it's got this idea of ongoing. It's a thing that we do consistently in our life, these small moments of our life, because there's this reality that while we live now in this world, while the kingdom of heaven hasn't been brought in fully yet, there's this reality that we can live with Jesus as our king, and we can say, I follow Jesus, and yet, functionally speaking, day to day in our lives, we can make something else the highest authority of our life. Functionally speaking, in our life, we might not say it, but we can make something else the authority, the king that I live for. And in doing that, we sacrifice our relationship with Jesus. We sacrifice obedience to Jesus. We can do this day to day in our life. So it's possible to make family our king. You know, we might not say, you know, my family's my king, but it's possible to make family the highest authority in my life. Where I might say family's the most important thing for me. I'll do anything for family. And in those decisions, we can actually sacrifice obedience to Jesus, what he calls us to. We can sacrifice our relationship with Jesus in order to live for our family. It's possible to make work our king, the highest authority in our life, where we work so much that we're so exhausted from our work that we actually begin to sacrifice our relationship with Jesus and our obedience to him. You know, we don't have any energy left to serve or to meet with God's people or to be here consistently on a Sunday because we've made work our king. It's possible to make success our king. You know, where we're pursuing, maybe it is at work with the corporate ladder, maybe it's our pursuits of our hobbies or our interests where we think we can make something of it and we can make that our king and that our authority, and so we sacrifice our relationship with Jesus, our obedience to him in order to become successful. Anything, we can make the highest authority in our life. You know, it's possible to make sport your king. You know, on a weekend like this in Australia, AFL final yesterday, NRL final today, it's possible to make sport the authority in our life. You know, where we can know everything that there is about every person in every team of every league. We could read for hours on hours on end about something to do with some sort of controversy in a sport, but then get to the end of the day and go, you know what, I didn't read my Bible or pray today because I just don't like reading. We can make our phones our king, the authority of our life, social media, where we read and read and read and find out everything about everything online. And again, just think, how is my relationship with God this week? How's my obedience to Jesus this week? See what I mean? We can make anything the highest authority in our life where we begin to live for that and we sacrifice Jesus in order to make that happen. See, this is why we need repentance. This ongoing repentance, this gracious gift from God where he invites us to actually go, hey, Jesus, I've made something else the authority in my life. We can apologize to Jesus for what we've done. Seek forgiveness and in his gracious and loving arms be invited in. Find that forgiveness. Be transformed in that moment. It's an ongoing thing that happens day after day. So that's the first thing we do. 
in light of Jesus being God's king. It's, repentance is practical. It's ongoing. It happens over and over again. The second thing that we do in light of Jesus having a people where his people listen to him is that we, if we call ourselves Christians, we listen to Jesus. Now, obedience, I think, I feel like we often talk about this here at Southside. We do on the Navigate devotional podcast as well, that obedience happens in small ways in all of life because life is made up of small moments. We talk about this, I feel like we do a little bit, maybe a lot. But sometimes there are moments in life where God calls us to big moments of obedience. And I think it is worth reflecting on this because for these guys here in this passage, this is a big moment of obedience for them. You know, they are sacrificing a lot to follow Jesus. There's financial sacrifice, there's family stuff going on. This is their livelihood. And yet here in this moment, when Jesus calls them to something big, they follow him. Now again, obedience in the small thing matters. And chances are this week, we're going to have a thousand small moments. But there are moments in our life where God is calling us to something big. And I think sometimes we get good at making excuses about why it's not the right time for us. I don't know, have you ever felt this? Have you ever felt a big calling, a big pressing from God in your life, a big change? Maybe it is, you know, changing from one work that pays more to another work that pays less so you can serve Jesus more. Maybe it's actually to pursue ministry at a full-time or part-time capacity. Maybe it is just to give an amount of time in your life to serving God that actually is going to make it more uncomfortable for you financially. Maybe you felt a pressing from God to be an overseas missionary. I don't know, maybe it's something else for you. But sometimes in life, he does call us to big things. And I think our default is to excuse it and, and take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on our present circumstances. If Jesus is king, and if he's God's king, and if we say he's our king, then in those moments, we need to listen to him. Now, we might not have all felt that, but I wonder if you have. I wonder if you felt this call from God to do big things in your life. I wonder if this is what you're feeling right now. Sometimes God calls us to big things. Now, I'm not saying let's be impulsive. Let's not be wise about it. Let's not seek counsel about it. But there are moments when he calls us to extreme and radical obedience. That's the second thing it means for us. And then the third thing it means for us is from these final passages, uh, final verses, that he brings a kingdom reality. And the final thing it means for us is simply that we've got to keep our eyes fixed on the future. We've got to remember the kingdom reality that Jesus is going to bring in. This place, earth, it's not our home. We have a future glory of a future reality where heaven is our home. And we have this future hope that Jesus will one day fix what's broken in this world. He'll invite outcasts in. He'll heal the broken. He'll restore those who are suffering. And heaven is this picture of future glory where Jesus rules and reigns as king, and it's good. And how much do we need to remember this right now? We've got to hold on to this truth that we have future glory waiting for us. And we need this right now more than ever. And I think our world needs this right now more than ever. You know, we get to the end of a year that for many of us has been the hardest years in our life. 
And it's interesting, what tends to happen at the end of the year is we often begin to think, thank, like, I don't know if you've heard this, but people often say, thank God that year's over, let's bring on the next year. You ever heard that? Uh, we were joking, talking about that this week, having kind of a, a joke about that, because we remember, well, I remember particularly in 2016, at the end of 2016, people were like, thank God 2016 over, let's get to 2017. And the reason they said that was because I think a few celebrities died in 2016. Now that's tragic. But that happens every year. At the end of 2019, people are like, oh, bring on 2020. <laughs> but it's happening again. You know, we're getting to the end of the year and we're hearing this again. Let's just get to the end of the year. Like somehow 2021 is going to deal with all of the problems that we have in this world. You know, the, the coronavirus is going to be gone as soon as the year, the calendar ticks over. You see, the problem with this, though, is year after year, when we live in a world like we live in where the sting of sin exists, where suffering is here and sickness is like this relentless wave that just keeps coming after us, the next year isn't going to fix our problems. We need something better. We need a greater hope. And year after year, it would be hopeless if the king of heaven didn't enter into this world and deal with this broken world. And as we see the king of heaven, we have to keep our eyes fixed on that. We have to keep our eyes fixed on eternal glory and our eternal hope, not just for our own sanity, but because we have a world who is living in a hopeless state. This is why Jesus said, let's stop fishing for fish and let's start going after people. Because our world needs to know who the king is, what his people look like, and what the hope that we have is. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much that you came near, that we have a hope in this world. Lord, we know that year after year that we feel the sting of this present moment of sickness, of of suffering, of Satan, of death, Lord, we, we feel that. And it would be hopeless for us, Lord, except that we have a king, a king who's greater than anything else and a king who came near to fix this problem. Father, we pray that we would listen, that we'd be obedient to your call. We pray that we'd be a people who follow you in radically big ways and consistent small ways. And we pray, Lord, that we would do so with our eyes fixed on our future. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.